0: Hello, and a very warm welcome to a new episode of World Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Nav. In today's episode, we speak to Jamie Miller about biomimicry what it means and how architects can implement it to create more sustainable and resilient designs. Jamie founded Biomimicry Frontiers, a sustainability consultancy and strategic planning firm in 2017 and joined B+H Architects as director of biomimicry in 2021, where he is responsible for growing the firm's biomimicry consulting offering on a global scale. But before we begin, our resident trend spotter Hannah is with us for the final time to tell us all about organic minimalism, an interiors trend which strips back the unnecessary and excessive and is influenced by the natural
1: world. Organic minimalism retains the core aspects of traditional minimalism in that it focuses on clearing out the unnecessary and paring back the excessive. However, it deviates from the original in its primary influence, the natural world. Furniture, surfaces and ornaments are generally made from organic materials like wood, marble, terracotta, ceramic, rattan, hemp and cork. Pieces also incorporate organic shapes, colours, patterns and texture. For example, woolen rugs and faux fur cushions. The result is a warmer and softer aesthetic with a focus on sustainability. Organic minimalism is about creating an environment that supports people's well-being, a factor which increasingly governs our decisions, and thus is the reason for the trend's rise in popularity. If you want to discover some projects featuring minimalist designs, go to WorldArchitectureNews.com and search for ODA's first DC project achieves LEED gold certification an article covering a multifamily residential complex, which can house 1000 people in a single square block. Welcome, Jamie.
0: Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today about biomimicry. How did the idea of biomimicry begin? And how do you define it?
2: Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I must say that biomimicry is a new term for a very old idea. The term, by definition, is innovation that's inspired by nature. And it was coined by a woman named Janine Benyus in 1997 in her book, Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. But why I say it's an old idea is that we've been looking to nature as a species for ideas for many things, for art, for culture, for manufacturing, for design. And biomimicry kind of gave us a term to galvanize all of those practices And it's come at a time when we're looking for new models for inspiration for how to solve the wicked problems that we're facing. And so to give you an example, in the 1940s, George de Maistre, a Swiss engineer, copied the hooking mechanisms of burrs, those burrs that stick to your pants and to your dog's hair, to make Velcro. And that's the best kind of example of biomimicry, where you're looking to nature's forms and processes and systems to inspire new ways of doing things.
0: And how does biomimicry support sustainability and resilience are there specific examples that address both of those issues
2: yeah if you think of that velcro that's the most shallow form of biomimicry where you're copying shapes in nature but imagine if we could copy the way nature manufactures so process-based biomimicry you think of spider silk and it's a material that has a strength to weight ratio greater than anything humans have ever created And yet that spider makes it a body temperature, body pressure using water-based chemistry and only a subset of the periodic table of elements. Once we start to emulate the process that nature uses to manufacture, to create, that's when we start to talk about sustainability. Because there are no such things as waste in nature. You know, it's, it's a circular economy long before we came up with that term. And then the deeper level and the deepest level is systems-based biomimicry. And that's where we start to learn about resilience in nature and really was the focus of my research and my graduate work. You think of nature and the way that ecological resilience is all about adaptation and change at very small scales. So a tree will use information at the roots, at the bark, at the leaves, at the branches. And each of those systems is autonomously adapting to its environment, making small scale changes. Even our skin, you can think of the skin on our arms reacting differently than the skin under our shirts. It's all very locally attuned. The way that we define engineering resilience is more about how quickly, or how much a system can resist environmental changes and how quickly it can go back to its original shape. And you can see that in the way that we build for hundred year storm events. Engineering resilience is about resistance and predictability and stability. And it's because humans have a unique capability of harnessing stored energy in fire to make really robust materials. So we've been building on this paradigm of resistance, whereas ecological resilience is more about change and adaptation. And that's when we start to get to the depths of biomimicry is when we go beyond the form. And start to look at both the process and the systems that we can learn from in nature to build truly resilient and sustainable designs. What I love about biomimicry is that it invites us to look at the 3.8 billion years of research and development that has happened predating humans. You know, everything that's outside is the culmination of this time-tested evolution. And that's truly The model for how to thrive on this planet.
0: Do you think we're a bit clumsy in terms of pushing our buildings into an environment on the ground and not working with the elements around it? What lessons can architects learn from this? Do you find that there are very simple things that they can use?
2: Yeah, I think you could go back to those three levels again. And form-based biomimicry may be the most shallow but it could inspire unique and very efficient forms in a building in architecture you see that tree is constantly adapting you can think of a tree as a building a massive structure with incredible materials embedded in it trying to work in a dynamic environment housing lots of species and organisms you know it's it's collecting solar energy but the tree is making its form fit its function And so we could learn from that. Another good example, there's a company called Whale Power that emulated the fins of a humpback whale. And humpbacks have these bumps called tubercles on the front edge, which seems counterintuitive for fluid dynamics or aerodynamics to have these bumps on the front edge. But when they applied that to a wind turbine blade, they found that that wind turbine blade was 20% more efficient. It ran at slower wind speeds and was quieter than traditional blades. And that's an example of how we could look to forms in nature to make greater efficiency. So in a building, whether it's leveraging wind or using wind or working with dynamic rain events, you could use form in clever ways. Look at how leaves and bromeliads, different species of plants, capture rain so elegantly and so beautifully. So that's the easiest way for architects to adopt biomimicry is to look to form. But that's truly not going to get us to where we need to go as a species in terms of sustainability and resiliency. And that's where I think we could see a lot more application. So imagine manufacturing like nature, you know, additive manufacturing. We're seeing incredible capabilities with 3D and 4D printing. Imagine, though, if that 3D printer could take information. So every time it lays some of the material, it's using the environment to teach it how to design in that space that's what additive manufacturing in nature does it's you know a forest doesn't all of a sudden show up it evolves and through that Mm. constant evolution it's picking up information and finding out what works here what's appropriate so that process could also be applied to not only buildings but cities and then finally the deepest level architects could learn how to build cities like a forest you mentioned the idea that we kind of plop buildings down and they're not really connected to the rest of the buildings around them but in a forest Not only are the trees deeply connected, so through their roots, they're actually connected through mycelium, through underground fungal networks, and those fungal networks are sharing information between trees, even competing species, sharing information and resources so that they raise the ability of the whole forest. They're all connected, sharing information and resources, telling other species that there might be a pest invading or that in tough times, there's things called mother trees, and those mother trees are the more prominent, more successful trees. And they'll actually donate resources to their progeny, to other species to help kind of keep the forest afloat. Because it, I don't want to say it understands, but that's kind of how it feels. A forest intuitively understands that it's more resilient when the whole system is more diverse and interconnected. Um, another thing to think about is a forest often has this intact canopy. You don't see one tree that's 800 feet above the rest of them. And that canopy provides such a beautiful ability to maintain resilience, because that means the environmental pressures can't come in and penetrate that canopy.
0: And holds a safe atmosphere, doesn't it? Exactly. The idea that trees talk to each other through very low fungal communication is fascinating. And I mean, if we look at buildings today, how can we replicate that? I guess it would be through communication, you know, wires between buildings, but then you'd have security issues. So to some extent, these buildings do need to be independent and static on their own. When you talk about trees working with the environment, it's like when you see a tree that's in a continual wind from the sea, for example, and you can see those trees are shaped differently to work with the environment that they're Mm -hmm, in. mm -hmm. And they're not facing, as you would say, Structurally engineered to beat nature. Their form is working with the environment. Are there any parts of nature that you think should be involved that currently aren't at the moment? And how can designers use this?
2: Yeah, you bring up some great points. Just to go back to this idea of buildings being interconnected, it doesn't necessarily have to be so digital. It could be very analog. So imagine one building is more effective at collecting or harvesting rainwater just because of its shape. Imagine that rainwater could be distributed to the buildings around it. Or imagine one has better solar. Or maybe one has a restaurant with a lot of waste. And you could use that waste as a composting system and share it with a building beside it. So it's it's not just the Internet of Things and connecting through the digital world, but also you know the physical world and even the resources of people. With COVID, we realized that buildings are very fragile in terms of their occupancy. So, you know, we could even just share buildings. And to your point about trees bending with the wind, again, that's another example of just how our forms are so rigid and robust. And the thing that we focus on in our work is not resisting nature, but working with her because it's very expensive to fight nature. And so Mm. what we try to do in all of our projects is we try to understand the land, its trajectory, what it has to offer before any project because we want to know that trajectory. We want to know the flows. We want to know what nature could support us in doing. Nature is the ultimate carbon sequestration technology. It's the ultimate storm dissipating technology. So why not leverage nature itself in the design? But more importantly, let's figure out where nature wants to go so that we build in harmony with her because it's only going to cost us down the road the more we fight her.
0: Mm, That makes great sense. But in reality, what are your expectations? How many people are aware of biomimicry, would you say, and want to use the spirit of it within their designs?
2: Surprisingly, not many people know the term, but when I describe it, they inherently understand the concept. And so I think it's a deep idea that we've held for a long time. And we used to practice, and I say we, I'm talking about, you know, the dominant culture that designs. I work with a lot of indigenous communities, and one elder who's become a good friend, she said, well, Jamie, we've been doing biomimicry for thousands of years. So the practicality of it is, I live in what I call design fiction space, where I adopt these metaphors from nature to create visions of the future. on a practical scale what that means is very small scale applications and focusing on cost savings i believe that biomimicry is going to teach us how to design more cost effectively both in the short term and long term so in india for example we designed a wall based on elephant skin that helps passively cool a building and we just designed it using very rudimentary materials like rocks and connecting it to a rain harvesting system it's not expensive. So that's a very, you know, small scale application. But then also that process of trying to understand where nature is going to go and then building with it. We're mapping out the economics of that to show developers, to show designers that by working with nature, We can give them quantifiable numbers to say, like, you will be saving money. So I guess to go back, my head is in this design fiction, but I understand the practicality and where most of society exists, where they want the economic benefit. They want to see the cost effectiveness of this design. And
0: good numbers make it a far easier story to tell. Are you welcomed when you come with these ideas? Do you have clients or designers that come to you and want to work with this particular approach?
2: Yes, that's the real exciting part is I'm seeing a shift in my young career. I'm seeing a shift of people recognizing that we're facing very, well, in resilience literature, they call them wicked problems. And they're wicked because they have no precedent. And when something has no precedent, it's intimidating. So there are groups of people who are boldly stepping in as pioneers to say, "Okay, we need a new model biomimicry seems to be the most comprehensive one we've got so let's explore that and they're willing to put the time and energy into exploring it i'm seeing more and more people do that you know people who have had incredible success in their life so far recognize that if we want to leave a truly lasting legacy that we're going to have to do things a little differently
0: yes and i really like the idea of nature being a mentor so that we can learn from the very basic simple forms that work. Do you have any opposition though, when you are putting these ideas forward?
2: Yes, whenever you tell a story of biomimicry, there seems to be an elegance that it gets people excited. And then the very practical people I talk to are like, okay, now how do we make this real? So often it's if people can't buy into a vision and are kind of really stationary in practicality day-to-day operations, that's where I see there's a barrier and that's okay. I think in any group of people, there's always going to be leaders and there's going to be people that need a little bit more convincing. And luckily, like I said, there's enough people that are pioneering right now that I do have hope that we're going to see a system shift towards more biomimetic thinking. Ultimately, Mm. my goal is to have that term be irrelevant by the end of my career, that we don't even talk about biomimicry. It's just inherently applied.
0: And when you say short career, how long have you been looking at this in detail?
2: Well, I guess my process started in 2004, so it's been 18 years.
3: And would you say that biomimic design makes designs more expensive or challenging?
2: That's often a question I receive is, does biomimicry make it more expensive? And it's difficult to say yes or no, because in some cases, yes, it does make it more expensive because you're leveraging cutting edge technology, things that are still in prototype stage. You're going to require experimentation and data collection to prove a concept. But on the other hand, if you're really creative, you can do it in an inexpensive way. So I think the elephant skin wall, if we didn't use elephant skin. I'll be very clear. We emulated <laughs> the, the bumps and the ridges of elephant skin to make a passively cooling wall, which was very inexpensive. And so what I appreciate about biomimicry is that the biggest limitation, the biggest barrier to cost effectiveness is just creativity. How creative can we be as a collective? of taking ideas from nature and then using existing technologies today or existing ideas to make that metaphor real. So it's not a yes or no question. It can be very expensive, but we can be very clever and find inexpensive ways of emulating nature.
3: And the elephant skin wall, was that for the Bengaluru house in India?
2: That's correct, yeah.
3: And for this project you use biomimicry, permaculture and ecological engineering. Can you go a bit more in depth into what this means?
2: Yes. So the biomimicry we looked at different organisms to solve some of the challenges that we're facing. So how do you passively cool, or how do you cool a building? Um, recognizing the context, it was a hot climate and they have intense monsoon events with periods of drought. So we looked at organisms both in situ, like in the area, but also internationally to say, how do you passively cool? How, do, how does nature collect water and then maintain during periods of drought. So we looked at desert animals. We looked at barrel cactus. We looked at baobab trees for the water collection. For the cooling, we looked at ant and termite mounds. We looked at elephant skin. We looked at touch-me-not plants. Those plants that when you touch, they automatically close. And we implemented all of those as design strategies. We have adoptive facades that open and close. We built and did computational fluid dynamics to model the flows in the building to make sure that we could passively cool the building. So that's the biomimicry part. The permaculture part goes to the point I made earlier that nature's the best at the things we're trying to design for. It's the best at sequestering carbon. It can decrease ambient temperature better than, than we can. So why not just use nature? And so we designed a system permaculture strategy throughout the building, which means that all the plants are working together. Permaculture is a term that means permanent agriculture. And the idea is that we should build agricultural systems that require less human intervention. Because if you think of nature, it's a vast forest of food, and nobody's in there gardening it and tending to it. So permaculture is about designing a strategy where plants work together. And then the last point was ecological engineering, which it's a relatively new term that just says designing engineered systems that use nature and are for the benefit of both nature and humans. So we designed a wastewater garden You know, we don't really honor that nature loves the effluent that comes from our sewer systems. So why not design in a way where we could build like a constructed wetland that treats our human waste, but also provides a platform for an ecosystem to emerge. So those are the three levels somewhat defined through that case study.
3: And the landowner wanted nature to eventually immerse the structure. Yeah. Were you concerned that it could take over the building's structure and ultimately weaken it? or potentially grow out of control and become a constant problem.
2: Yeah, that's, that, that's a very uh, interesting kind of threshold. Humans have designed ourselves outside of nature so that we can have that predictability. We can have that control. Nobody wants rats and ants running through their house. And I love the fact that he's pushing that boundary to see like, what is that? Can we blur that line, that contrast between the built and the natural environments? And I mean, many societies, many cultures still do that. You know, they live in some rudimentary spaces that have bugs, but there's a way of creating harmony with it. I don't know it because I haven't lived like that, but that's the great experiment is how do you blur those lines?
3: So you had a testing strategy for this project Mm -hmm. of comparing various hypothetical scenarios with the design proposal. Has this been used in all of your biomimicry projects? And could you explain the benefits of it?
2: Yes, it's becoming a very important part of our projects because what we're trying to do is move beyond the paradigm of doing less harm. This idea that humans are innately a problem on this planet. I I don't want to live in that. I want to live in this belief that we are nature and that we're an important part of the whole system. You know, our breath is the breath for trees. Our bodies go back to the soil. So this measuring system that you're referencing is an attempt to show whether our buildings can be a contribution, whether they can go beyond doing less harm and be a contribution to their place. And what we're measuring is the ecological performance of the site. So prior to design, we measure how much carbon's being sequestered, how much temperature is being modified or reduced, how much oxygen is being produced, how much air pollution is being filtered, how much rain it can store. And that's our baseline. And the idea is, can we design a building that does better than what's currently happening? Because if so, then we're being a contribution to the site. But we didn't stop there. We also measured a third scenario, which was as if this area never developed and it was a, a natural forest, a native forest. And that's the benchmark that we're trying to hit at the upper level. So yes, our building performs, has an ecological performance better than what stands today. But we're not quite at that forest. And imagine we could build buildings that were as effective at carbon sequestration, at air pollution reduction, at temperature regulation as a native forest. That's where we're trying to go to. We're trying to see mm-hmm. buildings as not something that disrupts the environment, but that creates symbiosis with the environment.
3: And looking forward, do you still think there's more we can learn from nature?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's the best part of my job is that I truly believe we have no idea what's happening in the natural world. Mm-hmm. That. Our biases have blinded us from what's truly happening. And, you know, I read stories every day that just blow my mind, like learning that spiders fly on the electromagnetic fields of the planet. They can fly hundreds of miles offshore or that, you know, the recent research by Susan Samar who taught us that trees are interconnected and talking underground through their mycelial connections these are just almost the tiniest windows into what we don't know. And what I love about biomimicry is that it invites us to stand outside of human exceptionalism and realize that there's a system that has long lasted on this planet long before humans. And that, as Janine Benya says, we're not necessarily a bad species. We're just a very young one. And the more we can shed these biases that we have of nature, that it's something to take from, that it's a resource to consume, that it exists for human consumption. If we can shed that bias and, and believe that it's here to teach us, you know, there's a very different lens that you'll look at the natural world.
3: And in the spirit of learning more, what are the new innovations coming out of this field?
2: One of my favourite people out there is Neri Oxman, who was working at MIT and focusing on something called material ecology. And she's creating prototypes and designs that are both functionally inspiring, but also really beautiful. Often they're put into museums. The MoMA has housed many of her designs. And what she's doing is she's trying to invite us to think of materials in a different way. She's including biology in the manufacturing process. So creating these beautiful kind of structures using silkworms. So, you know, allowing silkworms to try and create structures or looking at 3D printed materials that are modular and each section has a different response to temperature or pressure so that if you sit in this chair that she designed, the chair is responding at different scales and different places to the pressure, moisture, temperature of your body. So she's one of my true inspirations because she's pushing the paradigm of materials and wants to apply this to architecture.
0: Where in the world would you like to now develop this idea the most? where do you think has the most potential?
2: For me, it's my home. This is where I'm relatively native to. So in Canada, I want to see this applied. I want to see these designs take shape. But we have a platform called the Biomimicry Commons, biomimicrycommons.com. And there it's, it acts as an incubator and education space for people to learn how to do biomimicry in their own fields. So biomimicry can apply to any field. It's just a matter of figuring out your niche and how to bring nature's genius to it so the goal the end goal is to have these clusters of communities these incubators across the globe using local talent working on local problems and creating local solutions because that's what nature does you know a tree doesn't travel half across the road or half (laughs) halfway across the world
0: and for people wanting to learn more Are there educational resources that architects can access to learn more about biomimicry?
2: Yes, there are a growing number of resources. As I mentioned, Biomimicry Commons, we have online education and cohorts and excursions. We ran an excursion last week in the Canadian Rocky Mountains. And there it's the aggregation of my 18 years of learning, studying, practicing, teaching, and applying biomimicry. And the purpose is to help people understand the biomimicry mindset, and more specifically, how to bring it into their practice. But there's also incredible resources. There's a group called Biomimicry 3.8, based out of uh, Montana, the States, and they have many educational platforms, a master's degree, online courses, a professional certificate. That's run by the women who really started it, it includes janine benius and dana bomeister the women who really started this whole movement and then there's groups yeah there's there's projects around the world south africa has learned biomimicry another online platform the biomimicry academy up in germany
0: well thank you that was a really fascinating insight into a world that i think makes the human race possibly look quite naive in some ways i feel it could be a question now of stepping back sometimes and seeing how nature over millions of years has actually made things work. So thank you very much for spending time and sharing your thoughts on this.
2: Thank you, it's been my pleasure.